0: Hello and welcome to the Equity Foundation podcast. The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of Actors' Equity. Our mission is to assist, educate and inspire performers. To find out more, visit www.equityfoundation.org.au.
1: Hello everyone, welcome. I'd like to officially start this session tonight uh, in the spirit of reconciliation by acknowledging the traditional custodians, of the country throughout so-called Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. I am zooming in from Kamaragul land of the Eora Nation, and I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. I acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded it always was, is, and will be Aboriginal land. As we are all storytellers from all cultures and backgrounds, it is an incredible privilege to be able to share our stories on this land. As we are zooming in from all over this sacred land, I ask that you please use the chat function to acknowledge the land you are currently on. And while you're doing that, welcome. Welcome to tonight's session of Industrial Resources, what your union and guilds can do for you. This uh, session is part of the Screen Diversity Showcase with the support from our major partner, Screen Australia. My name is Jonathan Chan, and I'll be your moderator for tonight's session. My pronouns are he, him. I have been uh, an MEAA member since 2003, currently sitting as a delegate to the MEAA Federal Council Equity Section, otherwise known as the National Performers Committee. I'm also a co-chair of the Equity Diversity Committee, which is a subcommittee of the National Performance Committee. All right, let's go through to introduce our panel. So one at the time, they will be introducing themselves with their names, pronouns, and lands that they're dialing in from, and a brief introduction on how their union or guild works and how they serve their members. Let's us go from um, this order. Alaric, Miles, Bryant, and Greg.
2: Thanks very much, Jono. And... Thank you uh, to Me and, and Equity for continuing this really important initiative. Um, uh, similar to you, John I, I, I speak here and I need to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land I speak from, which is the Kamaragal people of the Goringai Chi of the Uriora Nation. And I similarly pay my respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and their elders, past, present, and emerging. Um, I'm Adarit McCawson, he, him. I'm Executive Director for the Australian Directors Guild. And similar to uh, Mia and AWG, and you'll hear from them later, the most important piece of advice we like to give to early career directors is to engage with your union or unions and get involved. The ADG itself, around 1200 members, founded in 1982 and unionized in 2015. We're a union governed by an elected board of eight member directors and I report to the board, I'm employee employer of the union. I don't run the union, our members do. Of the work we do fits into three key categories, um, protect, develop and promote. In the way of protection, we look to improve professional standards, and conditions for our members and remuneration for Australian screen directors and protect and advance the creative rights of our members. Um, so broadly, we're fighting for better rights and recognition for directors. Um, We advocate at a state and federal government level for better opportunities for our directors and better conditions for our directors. Um, We provide legal advice to our members uh, by way of um, individual uh, discrete pieces of legal advice around contract issues. But we also provide template agreements, the starting point for your engagements. We do things like publish minimum terms and rates uh, for directors across a range of directors genres and we collect, collectively negotiate model agreements with key production parties, such as the uh, agreement we have currently underway with the screen producers with screen producers Australia for TV um, production with feature to follow. Um, from a development standpoint, um, as critically, we look to advance and understanding of the directors role by sharing and exchanging future focused knowledge and, and skills, and we do that um, by annual workshops and seminars and the craft and business of directing through our conferences, through regular mentoring and attachment and shadow opportunities. I think one of the key drivers for us, certainly the ADG, is we have a deep and rich knowledge base of emerging and established directors that early career directors can draw upon. And they are incredibly happy to share their experience. So one of the key benefits in joining a union, is to connect with that knowledge base. There is somebody there that has walked the same path as you before you who can give you guidance in your career as you step through it. And the final thing we do is really promote uh, our craft and promote a cultural voice that's, that, that's that's not just recognizable from a directorial standpoint, but truly representative of, of Australians' innate diversity. And we celebrate that very loudly in an annual set of awards, which is coming up in October. That's probably as long a preamble as I need. John, I know hopefully that covered everything.
3: Yeah. Hello. Uh, thanks, Alaric. Um, my name is Hunt. I'm a industrial work officer who works at uh, MIA. I'm, I'm coming to you from Gadigal land. And, yeah, I, I work in the equity division of MIA, which is the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, which is a union for actors, journalists, and crew, and musicians, and dancers, and really everyone in that performance space. And that's what equity does. Equity is uh, one third of that union, and it, it particularly deals with performers. Um, and as John o. Chan mentioned at the beginning, uh, he, he, he's on the committee, the MPC that sort of runs the direction of the union, while I'm sort of uh, working as a technical lawyer type uh, on the insides of the union, c- helping people, members with individual cases or collective matters that m- may come through to us, uh, uh, as well as sort of pushing for better rights and better conditions and um, better agreements across the board, which Um, hopefully provide all our members with um, the best possible wages and conditions that they could hope for in the in the circumstances and yeah welcome hope today is informative thanks
0: thanks everyone Uh, and hello Uh, I'm Brian Apollonio and I'm the senior industrial officer at the Australian Writers Guild and my pronouns are he and him Um, I'm speaking to you all from unceded country So the Australian Writers Guild is the professional association for screenwriters, stage writers, um, as well as audio and digital media writers. What we do is fight for the standards and and industrial conditions and remuneration for our members um, through, primarily through negotiated agreements, um, but also through the release of minimum rates for different genres and um, template contracts. Uh, we also, you know, fight to advance the creative rights and opportunities for writers and promote, you know, professional excellence through our development um, initiatives as well as our competitions uh, and our annual awards night, the orgies. We were established almost sixty years ago by writers for writers, and we now have around two thousand members. We're a democratic organisation run by members. So um, similarly, we. Our members elect a National Executive Council uh, who employs us, the staff, and there are also state branch committees um, that members can be involved in. We provide, one of our key services is the provision of industrial advice um, to to members of any tier. Um, We review contracts, we conduct research on their behalf, like the other guilds, we uh, link up with you know, senior practitioners within the craft and, and we can get information from them to assist you in in your individual matters. Um, and as well as that, we lobby we lobby third parties like the state and federal government um, and other industry bodies to you know promote those rights and the interests of our membership.
4: And uh, Greg. Yeah, thanks, uh, Bryant and Jono. Uh, Greg Duffy here from uh, Frankel Lawyers. Uh, I'm coming to you from Gadigal and Bidjigal land, and I want to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres people and uh, pay my respects to the Elders past and present. Uh, we're uh, intellectual property and, and media entertainment lawyers, and uh, we only act for the creative side of the industry. So, uh, obviously, directors, uh, performers, writers, authors, composers, et cetera, et cetera, and have done for uh, over 35 years. We also um, act for the Australian Directors Guild and give them advice across a range of matters, as well as um, providing uh, pro bono advice for their full members as well. And, um, yeah, we seek to basically protect the rights of artists as as much as we can, and so I'm looking forward to uh, being part of this Diversity Showcase. Thanks for having me. Thank
1: you, everyone. Thank you for that. Okay, so we might just kick off with um the questions okay so first question i think we'll make this um an intellectual property question for you greg or whoever wants to answer also um this is uh from an anonymous anonymous uh question so what are the five golden rules when
4: it comes to intellectual property all right do you want me to go ahead i'm not sure um there the there are actual five golden rules, there's a number of five, but um, I can certainly uh, give you um, some advice in terms of the the golden rules. The first thing is really uh, to protect your original work that you create. And uh, the way to to do that is to, in the first instance, uh, to put it in a material form, which means you either record it, or uh, write it down, uh, or film it, Uh, etc, etc. And once you do that, under Australian law and uh, international copyright law, um, as long as it's original, in other words, you haven't copied it from someone else, and uh, you're a citizen of this country, then uh, it is assumed that you own the copyright in it. Uh, There's a bit of a misconception sometimes that um, copyright must be registered in a particular place. Uh, That's not the case uh, in Australia and around the world. Um, copyright is uh, deemed to exist or subsist as soon as uh, it is put in a material form. However, um, we advise our clients if they're dealing, looking to deal with uh, international organisations such as broadcasters or streamers or production companies or distributors, then it is worthwhile registering your copyright in your original works at the United States Library of Congress Copyright Office, which was set up um, over a hundred years ago, by the U.S. government, uh, to create a record of people's copyright works. So um, there are different categories that you register in for screenplays, for scripts, for songs, for um, uh, uh, for films, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there are different prices, ranges somewhere between I think about thirty-five and and about a hundred dollars U.S. to register. So they're the main um, ways to protect uh, copyright and intellectual property. There's another, uh, other areas, I won't sort of go off on too many paths, but other areas, obviously there's trademarks and patents, and you can register those at the Australian Government Patents and Trademarks Office, which is called IP Australia. There's another way of protecting as well. Thanks, Greg, for that. Um, Sophie.
3: Hello, thanks so much for doing this. This is fantastic. I am Zooming from Jury um, and Bunrong land. And my question is, I am currently writing a television series that's based on my own life. And particularly I'm writing about some really intimate relationships I've experienced. Can you speak to the line between my own intellectual property and when it becomes defamation of character?
4: Sure, uh, well, copyright, uh, and intellectual property are completely separate to defamation so so copyright uh, protects the material form of and I'll use your example the television series so provided what you're writing down in your screenplay uh, or your um, uh, synopsis or treatment is original and you haven't copied it from anyone else then um, that's protected for copyright the second issue is is defamation if you are uh, um, identify someone in your uh, script or screenplay and they believe that you have defamed them or and which basically means that you've lowered their reputation in the eyes of people that know them, then there's a potential for them to take action against you for defamation. So the best, without going into great detail, the best way to avoid that is to completely change uh, all the characters Uh, If you're writing a a drama or a comedy or a piece of fiction, completely change all the characters in terms of their names, backgrounds, gender, um, uh, uh, experience, um, history, family members, et cetera, et cetera. And that way, uh, it's very, very difficult for someone to say that they've been identified in a particular work. Thank you,
1: Greg. Question. Uh, Yes, here we go. Here's another anonymous question. It's also, uh, it's related to copyright. Once a project and script is completed, how can you protect your work IDs whilst submitting or pitching the ID to broadcasters and producers? Do you copyright it? How do you do this? And how much does this that, that cost? Who would like to answer that? Um, I can jump in there, Jonathan.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of, I think Greg answered uh, a lot of that question, um, in his previous answer, um, there isn't anything that you specifically need to do, uh, copyright exists automatically, but what we generally advise our members is you want to keep track of who's receiving your work. If you're submitting something to a producer or a competition, do your research, uh, on that party, just make sure that that so sort of, you can establish an, uh, electronic chain to, to, that, to that third party before you send them that work. Um, that, that's something what's known as a causal chain. Um, and it does go to establishing a copyright infringement action uh, if, if something like that were to happen. Um, but, you know, and, and Greg, step in anytime, but copyright infringement um, is, is often difficult to prove um, and costly. And given the potential, the big potential of an overseas litigation it's less likely, at least for our members, the individual writers, to pursue these kinds of claims. Um, so the best thing that you can do is protect yourself beforehand um, and, and make sure you know, that, that you're certain about who you're sending your works to.
2: And, and without stating the obvious, Brian and, and Greg, um, we've spoken about this, the most important thing you can do is, is advise uh, the person you're pitching it to that the material they're going to be pitched is copyright and you own it and there's you know there's harm that's caused uh, should they divulge that um, confidence so to make and to put that in writing before you see them
4: yes it's pretty Uh critical um sorry just to jump in there it's pretty critical uh when you're about to pitch um your work original work to third party producers or commissioners or uh, broadcasters that you let them know that um, the work is is confidential and that it has value, and if they were to uh, uh, misuse it by copying it or giving it to someone else, then you would suffer some form sort of some sort of harm or loss, and and that's the three test, the three stage test for for, uh, for confidentiality, and um, as long as you let the other side no, either in a cover letter on top of whatever your work is, or you do it verbally, then they're bound by confidentiality. Um, so, yeah, it's worth knowing that.
2: Greg, is there, I mean, do you use non-disclosure agreements uh, with your clients?
4: Yes, but unfortunately, a lot of streamers, and I won't name them, and a lot of broadcasters, and I won't name them either, um, refuse to sign uh, non-disclosure agreements. So uh, under the law, you don't actually have to have it in writing from someone. Uh, if, I mean, the best case scenario is, sure, get them to sign a non-disclosure agreement or a confidentiality agreement, but in our experience, a lot of them won't. And so then it's really just a matter of, of um, alerting them up front that this is confidential work, it's valuable to you, and if they uh, copy it or misuse it, then it'll cause you loss, and um, they're bound by the confidentiality then. Thank you.
1: I have a follow on from the uh, first question about defamation and that is, can that defamation potential also be avoided if you put a clause that these characters are not intended to reflect real
4: characters? Uh, I'm happy to take this one unless anyone else is. No, that doesn't work. (laughs) Um, Because if if someone uh, feels that they've been identified in the work, Uh, and there is one other person in the world that identifies them, then that's sufficient for uh, defamation. So uh, putting a disclaimer at the front does not get out of the potential legal liability.
1: Mm. Okay, and going on to Ellie, is that how you say your name, or Eli? Hi, yeah, it's Ellie. Yes, Ellie. Hi. If if you want to ask your question. Sure. My question is um, in terms of defamation um, is there an issue with misrepresenting historical events in a fictional series tv series let's say or screenplay um, especially those of recent memory
4: Uh, I'm happy to take that one Um, you can uh, represent historical events however you want and you can misrepresent them however you want however if you refer to particular people who are still alive, if someone's passed away, if someone's died, then you can say what you want about them, that you can't defame the dead. But if someone in those historical events is still alive and they believe that you've defamed them, then they might take an action. But but the actual historical events themselves, you can represent and misrepresent in any creative way you, you feel you want to.
1: Thank you so much. Okay, let's um let's move on to a um I think it's an equity question. This one is another is an, another anonymous question. How can performers get money from TVCs and other materials being posted on YouTube? Yeah, it's an equity question. I was in an ad that had over three million views on YouTube and um, had ad plays. Um, so uh, YouTube views aren't in an item in the usage contract.
3: Well, yeah, I probably I can answer that. Um, first of all, TV commercials, well, obviously the person should have signed a contract prior to being in the TV commercial and Equity do have standard contracts, which we have on our website and are always available for people to look at and should be used. And they um, thankfully have um, usage rights listed in there, which would, where the person should be paid for their time, but also the usage of that, the use of that um, image or that, that uh, video. Um, And that should set out the rights, whether it's on TV or on on ancillary usage or online usage or um, on a billboard and all that sort of thing. And there should be a time limit. We don't never, at equity, we don't like any perpetual use in perpetuity of anything. So in our agreements, most, they're capped at three years and, and we usually... Uh, most of the uh, most of the periods are for one year with a, role, a right to roll over up to three years, and then you have to renegotiate. And that's in all our screen agreements, that sort of thing. But um, ultimately, in a TV commercial, you sh- there should be a online usage. should that should have been set up uh, where. person should have been aware that um it would be available on youtube and they're being paid for that um where it's not set out in the contract well you'd have to look at that individual contract and potentially it could be in breach if the if the tv contract sets out use is only on on tv and it's on youtube well then that's a breach and you could potentially make a claim against the producer and uh or the company that um made the production obviously that can be complicated because the employer is often talent pay or the producer and not necessarily say, you know, the company that made the ad. So that's why in all our contracts, you try and bind all the parties so we don't have that difficulty. But um, yeah, TVC, TV commercials often have high rates um, above awards and all that sort of thing. But yeah, be kif- careful on the usage and make sure you're aware of that before you sign it.
1: Okay. And um, while we're with equity, um, I would like to pass the spotlight on to... Um, on to Farad.
2: Hi, everyone. Um, thanks for doing this. I'm Darlene from Unceded Wurundjeri Land. Uh, my question is for Miles. Uh, if a play has a large cast, uh, does equity work on a case-by-case basis to accommodate
1: the budget of a theater company? I mean, if it means that uh, having actors who are playing secondary characters
2: not attend the entire duration of the rehearsals. Uh, as an example, if, if the production has four acts and requires 10 actors. Uh, who can't double up as characters, and five out of the 10 actors are only required in one of the four acts, although not ideal, but to meet budgetary requirements, can those five actors, as an example, only attend two weeks of rehearsal instead of four? Or do as writers, I mean, we start compromising artistically and write stories that predominantly have less number of characters?
3: Mm. Yeah, well, interesting, and it's an interesting, equity is always trying to balance. The rights of you know trying to trying to obviously our job is to protect the rights of employees and in this case performers, but we've also also want to protect the industry because without producers and without um, productions going ahead, then there's no nothing for performers to do. So um, that's always a balancing act, and 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 in general, you know the union is supportive of um, productions where where you know tr- trying to. Ad- I mean, we have our agreements that we try to uphold, such as the Performance Collective Agreement, and that's a minimum that we try to uphold across the industry. However, in, in cases of universities uh, doing films or um, friends getting together and putting plays on, that sort of thing, you know, we don't get in the way of people coming together and saying, we're going to share in the profits and all that, and we all go in um, face, aware of it, that, that That in this case there's, there's no money to to pay the performers and we we, we go in on face value. Then as long as people are aware of their rights and entitlements, you know, we understand that this is a difficult industry. And if people wanna make that agreement that that's up to them and, and we support their development as performers. Um, in relation to that issue, I think you you could just hire the, um, the people on the, the four other performers. I mean, you obviously could reduce the performers or whatever you, you wanted in terms of the, the, the play, but I think you could um, contract the, the minor parts to do less rehearsal period. a Two week rehearsal period, then a four week performance period, as opposed to four week rehearsal, four week performance. And the PCA has some flexibility in the fact that you have 48, 40 hours, right, um, to use, and performers often only do seven or eight, um, three hour stints in the performance weeks, which tends to be 25, 30 hours. So you could have up to 10 hours to do rehearsals during the week, which you can, you know, you can use that as a producer. Um, uh, you can also, um, you know, offset some of those hours. So, for example, in the rehearsal week prior to the performance, there's there's a right to use up to 48 hours for rehearsals. So um, often you'll have to, you know, producers in that situation might do a really big, long, hard rehearsal week the week prior and, you know, maybe have less rehearsal time and then maybe bring the performers in during the rehearsal performance weeks to try and deal with that issue where there's may not be enough budget to to have a longer period and have everyone in but yeah there is, I mean we support minimum the, the, the agreements as minimums but there needs to be some flexibility in the industry and we understand that but you know ultimately we want to create an industry where everyone gets you know the best they can awesome thank you
1: and I was just wondering um Brian on that note um the the, the question on how how you would um when you're like creating a piece of work i suppose then in in that instance you know where 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 do you make the choice to sacrifice you know because of budget constraints or artistic just you know in that instance
0: uh it's a good question i'm not sure if I have a good answer for it i, I think i guess that's more of a craft question when, when we deal with sort of playwright agreements um it's It's usually um, in the negotiations with the individual theatre company um, and you're talking about the commercial terms, you know, the licence, a commission. And I think, you know, the practical stuff of working out how to, you know, budget a play, for example, usually comes after the contract has been signed.
1: In our experience. And um, thank you. And Alaric, do you, does the Australian Directors Guild, um, do they represent theatre directors as well? And if they do, do do you have any comments on that question that was asked
2: Uh, no I don't have anything specific to to help out on that question but yes we do represent uh, uh, directors who are both screen directors and theatre directors okay thank you for
1: that all right we're going to along the same lines of um tvc this one is to do with uh casting briefs um this is again um again anonymous okay so with tvc the casting brief. List the rate, just say it's like $4,000, and and the agent says this um, they're accepting the audition is accepting the posted rate. However, can the actor negotiate that rate specifically for TVC? Are rates just stated and the people don't usually negotiate them? Or, for example, that person was told by a producer of an ad that they did that the males were getting more for example um as a woman um this person asking the question wants to make sure that yeah men who are doing the same type of role are getting the same as me so yeah equal equal pay question there with TVCs.
3: do you want me to go yeah I, th- I mean it's a hard one the rate that's posted on ad is usually the rate you're going to be paid you know, you go in, open, you see the four thousand dollar rate for a TVC and the you you agree to that, and you turn up to the rehearsal when you get off the roll, and then you you get that paid. I mean, theoretically, you can negotiate after, but I can't imagine any producer, whatever, um, or production company, whatever, change the rate that they're being paid because they're getting that they're being told to offer that from or a casting agent from a production company or a cl- or a client. Um, the uh, issue with inequality of rates of pay. Well, I mean, that is a, an issue. and I mean, uh, people being paid the wrong amounts, being paid under, under award, being paid, you know, unequal amounts for what the work they're doing. Well, that's uh, problematic. And I mean, we have general protections laws that try and protect against discrimination based on sex or based on race or based on a whole lot of things, marital status, you know, all these sort of things. they um, they're, they're complex and they're difficult to pursue in the Federal, in the Fair Work Commission, but they are open to people and they, and they can be pursued. Um, and our, our unions in your guilds are probably best to, to look at those sort of things. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, we just try to reduce the, the instances of production companies doing the wrong thing and paying the wrong rates and not looking after their performance. And, you know, most of the time people in our industry are pretty good, but occasionally you get situations which, are not ideal, and there are things you can do, but none of them are perfect, unfortunately.
2: Uh, but Miles, I think you'd agree. I mean, I think this—that is a prime example of when you would talk to a union and call that call that issue out. And I think um, there is a range of intervention measures, starting from you know a phone call to the producer and and and, and highlighting the issue that's been presented, uh, to taking a more legal standpoint. But it's certainly something that we, we would want to be engaged with with our members uh, very early on in terms of that kind of activity.
0: I th- yeah, I would just add to that um, sort of as a general comment that um, when you see situations like that, um, that you feel are breaches of, you know, industry standards or equity, um, your union is, is pretty well placed um, to address that issue on your behalf. Um, sometimes, you know, in a small industry, it's difficult to, you know, kick up a storm about certain things. Um, so that's, that's where we can come in uh, and approach, you know, a producer or, or whoever, or an employer, um, on your behalf without necessarily identifying you either
3: yeah and, and and i personally i've recovered thousands of dollars for members for t- for un- un- for tv commercial rollovers and things where they've done the wrong thing and you know they will listen as alaric said you a collective union is in a much stronger position than an individual to recover that money because we have relationships with production companies and talent pay but also you know we can pursue them out legally for you if you have to so yeah all good points i think
1: Okay, this is a question that is um, more towards writer, as a writer-director. So um, Alaric and Bryant, I think this is geared towards you and others obviously chime in if you feel like you need to. Okay, so as um, this one is from Melissa Anastasi. Um, As a writer slash director, when engaging a producer, it seems the norm is to sign over an option of the original work to that producer in order to raise development and other government funding. What is a way of structuring things in order to avoid having to do that? Is there legally a simple way to retain the rights to the works whilst giving the producer security that they are attached to the project? Is entering into some form of partnership a good
2: option uh well i think firstly i mean option agreements are pretty standard and they're there for the creatives uh, and the copyright owners protection as much as the producer that's looking to um, raise finance against that work i mean in at at its base level when it's successful uh, it provides a party that you're interested in working with you to raise that finance the ability to do so Unimpeded for a period of time, but it doesn't give them forever, and the and the, and the intellectual property returns back to you um, if they're not successful in that. Um, that said, and and uh, and I, I speak to Greg about this regularly. There are some other interest, interesting mechanisms that you might want to look at, and one of those is, is a collaborative agreement.
4: But I might let Greg speak a little bit more to that. Sure, you go first, Bryant, and then I'll I'll round it out with the legal stuff.
0: Yeah, no, um, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, all I would add again is the option agreement is fairly standard um, for this kind of thing. One, one thing that we, a couple of things that we do recommend to members a lot um, in, when we're looking at these option contracts is to ensure that there are milestones built into the contract. So um, after, for example, the first option period, um, the producer shouldn't automatically have an extension on that option. Um, they should instead be required to show you progress on development. Um, so for example interest from a third party or a funding body and in addition to that um, they, you should have a reversion contract a reversion clause built into your option which allows you to repurchase the material um, you know sort of reasonable uh, by repaying the producer reasonable and verifiable costs that they've actually accrued um, during development so I think those two things are, are critical in, in any good option contract Um Another thing would be to make sure that the extension fees um, that you're being paid increase with each period lapsing. All, all of this is to, I guess, going to making sure that the producer has as much skin in the game as you do. So it's not just them sitting on the work, you know, building a catalog. Um, they they must be committed to the development um, and be willing to, to um, expose themselves to risk um, through you know, increased option fees and, uh, and so on.
4: Yes, uh, look, I, I agree with uh, Alaric and Brian on all of those points. And obviously, when it comes to the uh, commercial negotiation points for an option, it's between the parties and you should get advice from your guilds and your unions about um, the parameters and the spectrum upon which those commercial terms should be, but just to also, you um, give a few other uh, ideas for Anastasia and anyone else listening. The option is the most used uh, agreement in the industry because it's the one that that works uh, for the particular purpose and it's accepted by financiers and broadcasters and streamers etc etc but there are a couple of other ways of doing it and as Alaric mentioned we've done this for lots of directors and writer directors uh, and producers getting together and and one of those is a collaboration or a collaborative agreement whereby each party to that agreement brings some other some speciality so there might be one party who's a writer uh, there might be one party who's a director and there might be one party who's a producer And collectively, they want to work together to develop the particular work and then pitch it to broadcasters or streamers, et cetera, et cetera. And so they will enter into an agreement up front to say, this is the roles that we have, this is the duties that we have, and these are the rights that we have. Now, um, if it all goes forward, then wonderful, and we'll split the the rights and the fees and the expenses, et cetera, uh, along this these lines, However, you must also build in uh, a time period so that if it all falls apart and you don't end up like liking working together and you don't end up want to go forward that you can get out of it and that the rights will be dealt with either revert to as Bryant said there's a reversion back to the writer or there's a split that goes to the other parties as well. So that's one way of doing it. that's a collaborative agreement. And there's also joint venture agreements which is two parties. together for a particular venture and that might be you know a single film or a single television series or or, uh, a web series and then there's also as anastasi mentioned there i think uh, melissa sorry um, uh, that uh, there's partnerships as as well you can have a partnership partnerships can you've got to be careful with and it's worth getting legal advice on each one of those agreements but particularly with partnerships because the law assumes that um partners are responsible for the uh, obligations of each other partner. So, if, if your partner goes a bit crazy and goes out and spends a whole lot of money, then in theory, under the law, you're responsible for um, those debts as well. So, uh, there are various ways of, of doing these type uh, creative relationships, but um, obviously, getting uh, some good advice from your union, uh, your guild, and also from a, a lawyer experienced in the area is uh, well worth doing too.
1: Thank you. Now we're going to ask a question related to voice over artists. So I'll pass that over to Juliet Jordan.
5: Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. I'm coming from Gadigal land. Um, I'm also part of the Open Voice Network And we are currently trying to establish some protections for voice artists whose voices are being used in AI voices and synthetic voice. Um, A lot of voice artists' voices are essentially being utilized uh, in ways that they they don't want, they're not being paid for. And we're wondering if uh, equity has started to think about contracts and education uh, around this particular issue about how to protect voices mm. the the rights and the usage of voices for ai
3: uh, um, it's a good question it's a good point and i think thanks for mentioning it i mean we have voice i agree voiceovers voiceover artists is an area where equity needs to develop more i mean i've been involved with working with the uh, voiceover committee recently, and we've been helping, you know, with uh, develop animation agreements, which we have in place for Australian animation productions, and also I've helped recently been developing a TV commercial voiceover contract, and we and we also have our equity rates card, but we are seeing, I mean, as we're seeing with TV and film, technology changes are changing the industry, and we sometimes don't keep up with that, and that's something we are Need to work on and, and i've had a few inquiries recently about um voiceovers in relation to books but you know our recording of books but also i have not had any inquiries about ai but that i can see is uh you know an area where we're gonna to have to develop agreements i mean the issue i found with the voiceover say equity rates card that we have which puts in minimum Rates for voiceover artists for TV commercials is there's not really a, uh, like, in we have a screen uh, a screen production, Screen Producers Australia is the screen producers um, sort of guild for, and they, and they are someone we negotiate with film agreements or um, TV agreements. Um, there is not really a body that sort of regulates voiceover. Um, the area of voiceover beyond, I mean, TV commercials is a sort of a out there and we're just doing our best TV drama series and that we can sort of work with Screen Producers Australia to come up with minimums, but if you're talking individual companies, all they've got to do is provide the minimums under the, the award, the Breca, which is probably not even really relevant in relation, doesn't really capture that sort of AI stuff, space you're talking about. So that is a an area which is sort of out there in a, is, is unregulated in a way, and is hard to regulate because there's nobody overseeing it. And you know, fighting against individual companies to try and get them to come to rate, higher rates is hard. And it's almost like you, in that space when there's sort of a, a gap legally, you need, I mean, collective power really is the, the way. Act performers banding together and refusing to do, uh, refusing to do works where they where where they're, where they're not protected and. And then that gives the union I guess a power to sort of come to the table with a you know better conditions and rates but it's hard for performers because we know that work is not necessarily easy for everyone and people want to develop their career but I think that you know unions are best with a, a combination of legal rights and agreements and collective power which obviously the USA SAG sort of does really well and and we're hoping equity can continue to build on and be stronger in that regard but Juliet I think you know I'd, I'd be great to talk to you uh, you know
5: yeah I think I think there's a long discussion here actually and also um, knowing what other other big unions are doing like SAG-AFTRA and uh, equity in the UK because it's, it's quite an issue now people's voices are being uh, recorded and then utilized this uh, and people aren't being paid and all sorts of issues are happening and um uh, so we would like some sort of representation for sure. Because mm-hmm. a lot of actors, by the way, are, are obviously doing voiceover as well because they can't do acting jobs. So voiceover is one thing that can be conducted quite successfully remotely using Source Connect or whatever. So it's an ideal, it's a huge area for actors to also get into gaming and, and whatnot. So I think we really should uh, start to look a little bit more at um, at this part of the industry my personal uh, opinion
3: (laughs) definitely and if i can get your contact i'll try and contact you next week so we can sure yeah Yeah.
2: Yeah.
3: thanks you appreciate that
2: and and miles i think the point i'd make and i'm I'm sure julie would support this is is ai doesn't stop at voiceover it goes to likeness and you know and replicating um talent you know on screen in a myriad of different ways but without the requirement for that acting talent to be there. So, you know, it's, a, it's the start, but it's not yeah.
4: just, the just end. Just one thing to add to that is, of course, um, voice over artists and voice artists are covered by performer's rights under the Copyright Act, uh, both here and internationally. So uh, the best way to protect those rights is to do exactly what Miles said, which is to get together collective action with the Guild, with the union, Ah, uh, using the performers' rights uh, sections of the Copyright Act, and and get uh, the uh, the union, the guild, to act on behalf of the performers, and uh, look to to uh, have some sort of industry agreement.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Well, there's also the Beijing Treaty as well, but I don't believe America or the UK have signed it, which is a uh, protection of of the copyright of audio performances. Yes, it,
4: it's, it's along the lines of, the, of performers' rights, and uh, although uh, that particular treaty hasn't been signed by all of the parties, uh, earlier treaties um, protecting performers' rights and giving performers moral rights, which means the right of integrity in their performance and the right of attribution in their performance, uh, has been signed by all the leading um, uh, copyright generating countries, such as the UK, US, and Europe, etc. Fantastic.
5: Thanks,
1: um, Brian. Do you have a Do you have anything to add in terms of while we're in this space of um, of uh, you know AI? Um, How does yeah?
0: Yeah. Look, I mean, it, it falls outside the scope of of the members we represent. I guess. I guess. And as a as a general point you raise, it, it is important for all our organisations to sort of um, to to be aware of these sort of technological changes, things like that, and and, and act swiftly to to address them. Um, you know, for for our writer members, um, you know, there's a there's a new booming industry in games writing in Australia, and and so there's a kind of imperative on us to sort of turn around. Um, minimum rates card for writing within video games and template contracts, things like that. Um, yeah, I think I, as a general, it's general, you know, as general comment, just it's good for all of us to be aware of what's happening in our respective industries and um, what's important to our members.
1: Thanks. Thank you for that. Thank you. We, I'm going to pass the microphone to uh, Simone.
6: Hi guys, thanks for this session. Um, my question was just more around um, reciprocal arrangements or agreements, um, particularly on US productions that are filmed in Australia, as I'm sure everybody knows there's a lot of them and a lot of um, working actors are working on US productions that are being shot in Australia at the moment. And that's across the board in commercials, TV shows, films, etc. cetera. Um, my query is more in relation to, uh, specifically SAG-AFTRA. So as an example, um, TV shows tend to be a little bit more kind of reciprocal in terms of you know, SAG-AFTRA, MEAA you know, rates and contracts on productions, but commercials tend to be a bit of a grey area. So, for example, I recently worked on a US commercial that's only screened in that territory. I'm a member of the MEAA, obviously. Um, all the cast and crew that had come out from the US to do the commercial um, were SAG-AFTRA, and, um, but none of the Australian performers obviously were covered under a lot of the same rates. So it tends to become an issue more so, I guess, from an actor's point of view. For example, if you go to work in the US and you wanna be SAG eligible to work on union projects, part of that process requires that you have to either be Taft-Hartlead or you have to have um, like SAG vouchers from SAG productions. So because everything is kind of happening in Australia, we don't kind of have the same types of um, rights agreements and sort of SAG rates. So I'm just wondering if anybody can shed some light because it's very busy at the moment with those types of productions, and, and a lot of agents and managers and productions don't really have the answers. I mean, it's something I've kind of asked about quite a lot. Um, so yeah, I'm just wondering if anybody has anything to share around that. Um, I,
3: I could probably help answer this one. Yeah. I mean, I do, I negotiate the agreements basically with uh, the offshore companies, be it uh Disney, Marvel, Warner, they all come here, and uh, fortunately, we uh, they all agree. If, they, if it's an Australian production, under Australian creative control, it's on our local agreements. If it's an offshore production, then they will use an offshore agreement, which is based on the SAG agreement. Uh, for, that's based on the film agreement, the TV agreement, and the new media SFOT agreement. Um, and that's as minimum rates and conditions, including residuals, equal to SAG. Um, we, the issue can be enforcement of that. Um, most of the production companies are pretty good, and we we come to those arrangements. Uh, There's also Global Rule 1, which protects the performers. So it says if there's a SAG performer on a production here, then all performers should be on the same conditions as SAG performer. TV commercials are exempt from Global Rule 1, so that's an area where... Unfortunately, it's outside the bounds, and all they've got to do is pay above the Brecker Award in for an Australian performers. But theoretically, an offshore production, all all produ- all performers should be on on those agreements, and we negotiate them for people for the for the productions for Australian actors, um, and they should meet the conditions of the SAG performers. Uh, it can become problematic when there are situations where it's a, um, a local production, or it's a, they're saying that it's a local production and. You know, creative controls in dispute, and you know, and we're trying to get the information as to who's directing, who's creating, who's who's behind it, and you know, that and that and they, there's a local production company involved, and some Australian residents who are involved in the in the creative side, and you can get into disputes then. And global rule one is really helpful because SAG has a lot of power, and we'll stop. We had a pre- recent one where they w- w- we're going to stop a, a a very you know. Uh, leave Neeson from coming out here to do a film unless the the agreement production agreed to use the offshore agreement and so i mean ideally equity australia gets to that position of power too through numbers but you know uh, it has been a boom for the industry especially with covid um having these offshore productions come and who knows how long it's going to last you know we've had a few cancellations recently so in may in may next year might not be as bright but that has definitely been great but you know the concern is, you know, where do we go there? But yeah, it is helpful in protection and those rates and conditions are usually quite good, but there are some exceptions to that, such mm-hmm. as TVCs and there's no way to regulate that or enforce that, unfortunately.
6: Is that just because um, TVCs, for example, are um, outside a different category, just only because obviously in the US when you work on TVCs, you do get SAG union contracts? So I'm wondering how they manage to get around it here.
3: Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. I just, I don't think they don't. They, I don't think they got. They are worried about their performers being undercut. So the point of global rule one is to stop their performers being undercut. Mm-hmm. So they come to Australia, get all the Australian people involved, and therefore not have SAG performers. Well, if everyone's on the same rates, then they're going to keep the US performers and you know get the local ones here. Um, and mm-hmm. we have import rules and that sort of thing. But maybe they're not interested in so much
6: mm-hmm. commercial. Quite- Trend at the moment like there's yeah a lot of actors that's how they're how we're working I guess <laughs> um, but that's good to know so tv shows and films obviously come under that global rule one
3: yeah and they're protected and I mean it also depends on the film and the budget and all that stuff but generally yeah most of them are on offshore agreements and they are sag rates and residuals which is great because hopefully our performers will get money down the track from those residuals
6: thank you thanks
1: Okay, an anonymous question now um, to do with royalties. If, you're in a, if you are a creative team and one person gets an ID for a TV series and that same person develops 95% of the ID, concept, structure, and also writes 75% of the script, what kind of agreement or contract should they have? How does royalties work in that case?
0: um so uh, so i think I, I think I can answer that question. Um, you, you would have a sort of general collaboration agreement with a with a creative team like that. It sounds like from the example that you've given um, that this one person who's come up with the underlying material and and the pilot script um, is is sort of the creator of this um, project um, and and it sounds like there's other people involved in it, but one person has done most of the work, so in in those cases, what we would recommend is that 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 one creator try and retain um, the creative control over that project, uh, if possible. And usually, that would involve something like promising the other um, people working on the team a credit on the on the series uh, if it if it goes up, um, and and a fee. Um, I guess a point to Bear in mind in, in these sorts of situations with emerging creatives is that a lot of the time people are agreeing to work um, without pay, um, and they're collaborating, and and sh- and it would be fair to expect a share um, in in the project moving forward. So that's why it's, it's just important to have these sort of collaboration agreements sorted out um, in the, before um, getting together to work. Um, you know, we, we always recommend that. If you are the originator of the concept that, and and you are collaborating, you know, with your colleagues, um, the you can still retain the control over the project. Um, you know, if if the work is something personal to you or um, contains, you know, biographical stuff, it, it's fine for you to you know be the, the, the ma- to manage that project. Um, it's just something that you have to negotiate beforehand. Um, and you want to make sure that if the parties that decide eventually that they don't want to work together anymore, that um, you have the ability to purchase those rights from,
1: from the other parties. Okay. Anyone else? No? All right. The next one is going back to, um, think, more defamation. Again, the next two questions are about defamation. And again, they're anonymous. This one is more about more to do with the other side being written about okay so how do you protect yourself sorry how do you protect yourself as an individual when a producer or production company engages you and think that you're an interesting character to write about for example through your likeness your job your background etc
4: i can uh, step in on that one if you like Um, This is fairly uh, well used within the industry. When someone, a producer or a director, a writer, whatever, wants to uh, create a work uh, using elements of your life, then um, you enter into what's called a life rights agreement. And that basically uh, sets out uh, an agreement between yourself as the person that is going to be, the character is going to be written about, and the producer, or writer, or director of the of the particular show, uh, at at what uh, point can they use excerpts from your life, and what can they do with them? Can they do? They have to stick to the exact truth as you as you experienced it, or can they dramatise, fictionalise, and and change, um, uh, and and you know, create a whole new fictional work? And so again, that's a negotiation. Uh, between the producer often or the writer or the director and the person about whom the the uh, particular work is and you just need to be really clear in that negotiation and then in that agreement the extent to which you will allow someone to fictionalize or dramatize events from your life and if the producer or director or writer doesn't do that and just goes oh that's all too difficult I'm just going to write it as I will then they leave themselves open to a claim for defamation later on Um, so that's why we always advise clients if you're going to do uh, a show whatever it is film television show etc etc about a, a person who's alive a real life person then uh, approach them and see if you can negotiate and enter into a, a life rights agreement with them.
1: And the second part to that question just came through is, how can you prevent if they just copy your life
4: and just put it in their work? Well, uh, th- there's, there's no way you can protect someone uh, uh, writing or, or making a film or television program or whatever about your life, except to the extent that if they do something that is defamatory, and you can identify yourself and it defames you, then you've got an action against them. And the vast majority of um, production companies, uh, financiers, broadcasters, SVODs, streamers, et cetera, et cetera, will say to uh, the, the producer coming to them, if this is based on a real person, do you have their consent and have you got an agreement with them? And if, if they don't then there is a risk of a defamation action. And most financiers, uh, broadcast, etc., won't touch the project with a barge pole. Does that answer it? I think so,
1: yes. Does anyone else want to chime in on that one? Okay. All right, so this is another one to do with uh, defamation. Seems like there's a lot, of, um, a lot of questions about this. Very interesting, actually. So it's good to have you, uh, Greg, to answer these questions. Um okay uh question is um i am using real life characters in my screenplay who have verbally agreed to be represented on screen can they down the line sue for defamation is there a need for me to request an electronic agreement yes absolutely
4: yes i'm not sure who, who answered that but um Uh, Yeah, it's always worthwhile uh, getting, uh, sorry, was that you, Bryant? Oh, no. Okay, sorry, sorry, I just heard someone jump in. But um, yeah, look, it's it's always worth getting an agreement in, in writing prior to adapting someone's life or events. Because, you know, things change and move and people who may be willing to have their life represented in a, uh, an audiovisual work in a film or TV show at the beginning and then things change for them and they change their mind and whatever, it, you know, it's best to have the agreement negotiated and settled up front that have the parameters of, of what you can and you can't do. Uh, so, yeah, put it in writing. Yeah,
0: I, w- I would just add to that, Greg, that um, the Writers Guild does have a template contract for life rights um, that you're able to use for this specific situation about the screenplay.
1: Okay. Well, thanks for all those questions, everyone. Since uh, since we're here on um, the, here as part of the Equity uh, Screen Diversity Showcase, I thought I might ask this question on behalf of everyone. Um, our audience here is a mix of people who are new to the union, old to the union, also um, union members, non-union members, and um, also very uh, various um, experiences from emerging artists to, um, to very experienced. So what kind of, uh, I'd like to go to the topic of diversity. So, um, with your respective unions, what kind of support and resources do you provide to members in terms of diversity um, as a whole, and um, specifically how your union is um, focusing on it? Shall we? Shall we go around from Alaric Miles?
2: Happy yes. to happy to kick off. Yeah, thank you, John. It's a it's a great question and very relevant today. I think. Certainly, our our diversity diversity and inclusion initiatives cover everything that we do, Um, it's not siloed into any one activity, um, whether we're undertaking attachments, uh, whether we're mounting awards, uh, whether we're um, providing learning development for our team, and I noticed Belinda Button, who's our um, senior development um, manager, is uh, on this. Um, We always make sure that our programmes are reflective of the diversity of our constituents and the constituents of of Australia. Um, And we always take great trouble to make sure that there's opportunity provided uh, across all aspects of diversity and and we're as inclusive as we possibly can be across all our initiatives. And and importantly, that's not just reflected in our own programmes that we mount, um, but also anyone that we partner with. So, and I I think that's a a key part of you know of who we are and what we have been and what we've been doing for a a long period of time. Um, I think you know I I certainly and I I know we won't have much time to talk about this, and we spoke focused a lot on industrial and um, contract instruments today, but it's only one component of what uh, certainly we as a union do um, a large part and by by far the most rewarding. Uh, part that we do is supporting members across the community um, in advancing their careers whether they're entering uh, the business or they're they're looking to to take the step from emerging to established. so um, I I would welcome um, any contact with anyone here who would want to find out more about the the Directors Guild and and our practices um, and how um, our diversity and inclusion programs um, work across uh, uh, the, the industry. I'd welcome that contact and encourage everyone to contact me after here and I'm, I'm happy to pass those contacts on to um, James and, and, and Jonathan so you can do that.
3: Um, uh, the equity, I think John are probably in a better position to to talk about this given you're on the equity of one of the, the leaders in the, our diversity committee, which is you know obviously a subgroup of our NPC, um, our performers that sort of run the, run the, run the direction of equity so you know i'm sure you've got them some things to say as well um i'll just say that you know it's a big part of equity and and from my experience working there i've noticed that the um that it's it's a big part of the direction and it's something that you know we care deeply about and I've, i've you know there's some substantial you know, things around in, uh, rights of individuals and, and building a, a better collective that uh, sort of are the basis of some of the things we do, such as intimacy guidelines and and pushing for cultural consultancies and cultural leave. And there's various things like that where, I, you know, I see it from an industrial level, but um, yeah, you know, John, have you got anything to add? I think you're probably best to, to discuss this.
1: Yes, I know that the last uh, federal council that we had, um, federal councils every two years or four years sorry mark two years two years yeah every two years and so the the federal council is elected by members of the union um, on all um sections so equity um entertainment crew and sports journalists and musicians have i missed anything no that's, no, that's it, it. Isn't it yeah um and so that there's an election coming up this year it was meant to be last year so it's a late it's coming up later this year um and so we um at our last federal council that's where all the um the, the sections of the unions come together and um start to strategically plan how the union is going to operate the last One was very important because it was a four-year strategic plan. Every four years, we work on a strategic plan. In that, uh, the Equity Diversity Committee had um, pushed for Equity to um, develop uh, a uh, diversity inclusion plan, reconciliation action plan, and also a disability action plan as well. we're working with the unions to make sure that that is going to be delivered over the next um, four years. Um, the other thing is, is that um, Equity um, Foundation are obviously putting a lot of resources, you know, trying to put a lot of resources into equity, including this Screen Diversity Showcase and also I'm not sure, Miles. I'm not sure. I'm just going to speak in code here. Um, am I allowed to talk about this job that's gone out? I'm not sure if it's gone out or not.
3: Um, I think that no, it's gone out. I think. I think
1: the job description about yeah. the organizer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's a there's a new there's a new organizer position that's being announced. Uh, that's being advertised currently for um a union organizer and most of their job is to work with the Equity Diversity Committee to serve the union and their members better. So that's um, the news on that front. Okay, Uh, did you want to add to any of that, Miles? Okay, Okay. Uh, Brian.
0: Yeah, um, so so we work with our Diversity and Inclusion uh, Committee on a number of initiatives with with a focus on emerging uh, writers from diverse backgrounds. Um, through various initiatives like the Afters Talent Camp, we you know select writers and offer them, you know, free memberships at the guild, which of course entitles them to industrial and legal advice uh, and entry into our competitions. Um, we also run note taker workshops to train to train up the diverse and emerging writers in note-taking um, and and publicize, you know, their their selection um to production companies and get them a role. In um, writers' rooms uh, on ongoing series. Um, and we also, oh, and, and to the selected writers from, from these um, diverse backgrounds, we um, include them on our Pathways program, which is a sort of a gateway for scripts for emerging and established writers um, that producers look to to find new original content. Um, but yeah, same with, as with Alaric, I'm happy to field any questions. That you specifically might have on on the diversity initiatives that we run and i can also put you in touch with our professional development manager
2: yeah and i i would i would say and i know john o'brien and miles you know this none of us work in a vacuum and very often we collaborate collaborating on public policy around diversity inclusion um because we we appreciate there's a significant gap there that has to be bridged and it's going to take all of us putting together to make sure that we get there so particularly around you know um, safe space and and, and cultural security, um, these are all you know common interests across all of our, our memberships and, and where that happens we collaborate and we share and it would include parties that aren't here on this call today, such as the Screen Producing Association. So uh, I think we we have a very collegiate and and common um, outcome that we're all looking for and we share where we can.
4: And Can I just add, Jono, from a legal point of view, if people listening and everyone involved in the industry want to ensure that, um, as we all do, that diversity is something that's front and centre in all of the projects, then from a legal point of view, contract for it. Get it in the agreements. If you're entering into an agreement with someone on a project and you want to make sure that um, there's diversity in that project, get it in the agreement. Say that you want that as part of the development and production and exploitation of the project um, and I think we're seeing a lot more uh, contracts along those lines particularly from production companies now uh, where they're um, contracting for um, diversity along various lines and it, it, it just it, the moment that it starts to enter into the, the legal contracting process and the agreements is when it can be enforced. And also
1: just to remind everyone as well that um, the power of the union comes from the membership and rather than the other way around there's this misconception that unions are there to serve their members no actually it's the members are, are contributing to then guide their union in how they want their union to be mm-hmm. so the most powerful thing you can do and I can only speak on equity's behalf because I'm an equity member is for example an election is coming up and anyone can elect to be on this council now, equity cannot action anything unless there is a majority vote from this from this uh, federal council. It is like uh, the the federal uh, federal members, for example, in parliament. You know, a majority vote. So I invite you all to um, to make sure that you nominate yourself if you feel like you can lead this union into um, advocating for real change. Now this, thank you to the, to, you know, to the, uh, the recent election um, and the leadership there, they wanted more diversity in the, 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 the um, Federal Council. This Federal Council, and it's better late than ever, but this Federal Council that currently sits and you can view it on the website, is the most diverse it has been in 80 years. And like, I mean, it's not something we should be proud of. It's something that should be done. It should already be done by default, but it takes a lot of um, action on our behalf to make that happen. So we've got, for the first time, Indigenous um, representation for Indigenous, men, Indigenous members on the uh, federal council, as well as, um, or backgrounds as well. And we would like to extend that, you know, to as many as we can. Um, so just, yeah, just a reminder there. Um,
2: it's a really good so, point. And I think, you know, when we're talking about, you know, one of the best things you could do is get involved with your respective union or unions. And by involved, I mean actively engaged. And yeah, we're, we're, we're all here as paid employees at the behest of our members and serving an elected board. So the best thing you could do is engage with the union, communicate with, be very active in in everything that they do.
1: Okay, look, we've only got a few minutes left, literally like three minutes left. All these questions are currently starting to rush in. However, I would encourage you to contact your respective unions to ask these questions. Um, Just quickly, just where can they, Access that information. Where can they um, contact all of you or your union or the people in your union? Alaric?
2: I'll I'll drop you, I'll drop um, my my email into the chat and uh, people can contact me there and I can point them into the right direction in terms of what their needs are. Um, and yeah, I would say that we we have a range of programs for just about every part um, of the industry and every stage within your career. So yeah, um, I'm very happy to, to um, connect with anyone that would like to, and I'll drop my email and contacts uh, in the chat and you can go from there. Yep,
1: yeah, and James from Equity Foundation just put his email in and- um, Yeah, uh, I just dropped mine as well. Um, you, can, you can,
0: sorry, um, you can contact me personally. Um, my email address is just my name um, at awg.com.au, but you can also contact the General Industrial email address probably easier to remember.
3: Yep and miles. I just put my uh, miles.me.org Yep. happy to talk to anyone or if you just have general inquiry aid at Mia.org and, and I'm sure you, people have got James's contact from the Equity Foundation as well. Um, you know we're always happy to help and provide advice or you know whatever inquiry anyone has, happy to direct you or try and advocate for you if, 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 uh, if we require if, if it's required for sure.
1: Okay, and um, Greg, how would um,
4: we... Yes, uh, well, if, it, if it's a director and you're a member of the uh, Australian Directors Guild, then go through Alaric because uh, we provide uh, services to um, uh, uh, members of the ADG through there. And otherwise, uh, anyone uh, can contact me at uh, Frankel Lawyers and it's just greg at frankellawyers.com.au. I will
1: just post that in
4: now. Okay,
1: I'll pop that in there. Okay um, for, um, just uh, one sentence. we're going to go around <laughs> and um, one sentence from everyone um, on this panel about this my question my question is in a utopian perfect world where there's no issues of politics and um, problematic behavior by you know the, the decision makers and everything, how do you see your industry? Aloe? Right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> growing and growing in diversity, I think, are the, the, the key drivers certainly for us. Um, I think, you know, and I know we didn't get to it, but one of the biggest issues I think we all um, face at the moment is globalization and providing appropriate opportunities um, whilst protecting our members' um, rights. Um, there is a big um, train coming in uh, relation to the streamers and uh, we think they should be obliged to make Australian content and, and apply and employ Australian talent um, that's on screen and behind camera and at the moment there's no legal obligation for them to do so so we're very, fighting very hard to make sure that that is the case and we think that's the, the biggest thing we could do for the health of the industry for diversity in the industry is to legislate for it legislate um, for streamers to um, be obliged to make Australian content and legislate for diversity across what they're making.
3: Yeah, you hear, Alec, totally agree. Uh, That's a big issue, obviously, the streamers. and Dealing with technology, obviously, uh, and trying to, um, you know, obviously... uh, for actors, we, you know, they're used to a world of theatrical release and gross receipts and stuff. And now we're living in a digital world where it's, there's no such thing as gross receipts. It's only license fees paid by these big companies. So there is a changing world. And, and, um, we've also, our performers have suffered greatly. You know, we've had some booms in screen, but we've suffered a lot in th- theatrical, um, through COVID. So obviously, I think maybe, hopefully, the, uh, People of the country have realised the importance of our culture and our artists and our performers. And um, our, our job is to protect that and, and to grow and strengthen. And I think that's we, we're going to do that and continue to do it.
0: Yeah, uh, agreed with all of that. Um, the Make It Australian campaign is so important. Uh, what we want to see you know, is Australian stories, more Australian stories on our screens and stages. We want support for our playwright members who've had to suffer through lockdowns after lockdown cancelled seasons Um, and we want to create an industry where emerging writers um, can you know practice and hone their craft in Australia and then go on to create you know new television shows or feature films um, and are paid what they deserve and have control over their scripts
4: yes look I would agree with Bryant and Miles and Alaric and everything they've said I'll just quickly say that you know, div- diverse voices come from Australian voices. And if we can support the Australian industry, uh, then we will get diverse voices. Let's support that.
1: Thank you. So in closing, I would like to thank everyone here on the panel. Alaric, Miles, Bright, Greg, for your time. I'd like to thank the Equity Foundation for having us and making this session possible, especially with the support of Screen Australia. Thank you all for your incredible support by showing up and asking your questions. So that's it from us. Have a nice night. Hope uh, people in lockdown get a haircut soon and uh, stay safe and thank Thank you. you, Thank Thank you, Jonathan,
3: for for moderating. Appreciate it.
4: Thank you, Jono, appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks. thanks. Thanks, Jono, appreciate it. Thank you all.
0: Media Super is the principal sponsor of the Equity Foundation. For more information about the work of the Foundation, visit
3: equityfoundation.org.au or follow Australian Actors' Equity on Facebook and Twitter.